Hey, Pitchfork Economics listeners, Goldie here. As you may know, Orthodox Economics tells us that we're always paid exactly what we're worth. And given the ungodly fortune he's raked in, Nick must have worked extremely hard over the past year. So he's taking a well-earned holiday break. To fill the gap over the coming weeks, we're going to re-air some of our favorite episodes of the year. And let me tell you, it was hard to pick. For example, we talked about billionaires devouring the world with Peter Goodman. We explored how thinking like economists holds us back with Beth Berman. And we asked the question, why won't trickle down die with Mark Blythe? Those were just a few of our favorite episodes, but judging by the massive amount of downloads on this one, we'd say this is one of your favorites. Dig corporate greed, break the supply chain with Rakeem Maboud from the Groundwork Collaborative, which was released back in March. This episode exposes how the supply chain was actually designed, not for reliably getting goods to people, but for, you guessed it, maximizing profit. So happy holidays and happy listening from all of us here at Pitchfork Economics. There is no doubt that we have more of a corporate greed problem today than we have an underlying inflation problem today. A series of policy choices over the last 50 years have given these mega corporations an incredible amount of power over our supply chains. 70% of low-income households are reporting hardship. Yes. Uh, well, uh, well, we know at the that same nearly... time, <laughs> yeah, all the biggest companies in America are reporting record profits. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, I, I know you live in a different world. I'm wondering if you've noticed the impact of inflation <laughs> over the past few months. Have did, did you notice that the prices go up? Do you, do you look at prices? Do you yeah. pay your own credit card bill? I don't know how that works. Yeah, I have not uh, been massively impacted by uh, the increase in gas costs or uh, the increase of grocery costs, both because I have a lot of money, but also because I drive an electric car. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I'm well aware of the dramatic increases in prices that folks are feeling. And, and you know, not to be glib, uh, you know, the, the place that I get to see it most vividly is that my wife and I are remodeling a house right now. And the parts for that house come from all over the world. And it has been frustrating and interesting to watch what's happened to prices as we have gone through the pandemic trying to get this project done. So by way of example, we're putting in some walnut floors in this house. And our contractor told us last week that it is a darn good thing that we bought it a year and a half ago, because if we had tried to buy it today, A, we probably wouldn't be able to get it. But B, if we did, it would cost almost twice as much. What's interesting about that, of course, is that the global demand for walnut has not gone up. <laughs> and the rate at which the world was growing walnut trees did not go down at all, right? 
just uh, not that I know of. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So why is walnut so much harder to get and so much more expensive today? You know, this is the question that we're trying to answer for virtually all goods and services that have gone up in price. And it has nothing to do with uh, workers uh, earning a few cents or dollars more per hour. Uh, or, right? or those checks that the government <laughs> uh, yes. uh, sent out that did not increase demand for uh, for premium walnut flooring. Exactly. It, it's exactly. not like people all over America are taking, wow, wow, now I can have walnut floors. <laughs> exactly. That's not what's happened. And so no. you've raised two separate issues yeah. here, Nick. One is inflation. Uh, we've seen that um, recently inflation in the U.S. has reached a 39-year high. And unlike I suppose a lot of our listeners, you and I are old enough to remember when we used to have high inflation, when in fact, 7% inflation wouldn't have been such a bad, bad thing. I mean, that would, it wouldn't have been yeah. so high compared to some of the inflation we experienced in our youth. And the other is that supply chain issue, that some things just cannot be had or cannot be had in a timely manner. And it has nothing to do with prices. It has, in some cases, nothing to do with demand. In some cases, there's higher demand. Uh, putting strain on it. But we have this phenomenon right now where there's just like ships lined up outside the West Coast ports filled with containers and not enough capacity at the ports to unload all those ships and not enough truck drivers to take those containers to their destinations. It's not simply a uh, the fact that uh, we've run out of supplies that we can't get stuff one place to right. another. And that has uh, created, uh, put stress on the system, which has resulted in rising prices. And uh, as always ends up happen happening when we have a shock to the system like this, it's impacting uh, people in different ways. We have seen uh, surveys that say that 70% of low-income households are reporting hardship. Yes. Uh, well, uh, well, we know at the that same nearly time. Yeah. All the biggest companies in America are reporting record profits. Record profits <laughs> uh, at the same time that, that you've got these rising prices. Yeah. And so weird. Yeah. I wonder if those two things are connected. You know, well, here's the thing, <laughs> and we'll get into this uh, maybe a bit with our guests and afterwards. Yeah. It's almost as if, Nick, it's almost as if market capitalism is, isn't working as advertised. But to help us step through this issue, the uh, stress that the uh, supply chain is facing and Americans consumers are facing right now, uh, we've got a great guest this week. That's right. Rakeen Maboud is the chief economist and managing director of policy and research at the Groundwork Collaborative. And she has uh, she's done some really interesting thinking and writing uh, about this uh, circumstance. And it'll be fun to chat with her about what's going on. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Rakeen Maboud. I am the Chief Economist and Managing Director of Policy and Research at the Groundwork Collaborative. Well, so uh, Rakeen, you recently uh, co-wrote an article for the American Prospect with David Dayan, and in it, you discuss how we broke the supply chain. So who's we and how did we break it? You know, in many ways, the the title is a bit of a misnomer because I don't think we broke it, right? I think these big companies that run the supply chain 
designed it exactly as it's it's supposed to be designed for them. But to take a step back, essentially the article really dives into how a series of policy choices over the last 50 years have given these mega corporations an incredible amount of power over our supply chains, which has led to this incredibly brittle system that is unable to withstand shocks, has no sort of inventory or fail safes built into it. And as a result, when it was hit with something like a pandemic or even a storm halfway across the world, this brittle supply chain broke down. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. You know, there's obviously a connection between the supply chain and higher prices and what we're presently calling inflation. Where does one stop and the other begin? When you think about this whole system, right, we have what is essentially a system of really big links that is incredibly concentrated. So, for example, three ocean shippers control pretty much all of the ocean shipping um, in the entire supply chain. So if one of those links goes down, the whole supply chain sort of falls apart. And so when we do see something like a shift in demand or an increase in demand, like we saw over the course of the pandemic, one that creates bottlenecks and supply shortages, which sort of invariably raises prices. But what it also does is gives these big corporations who have such a hold on our markets, the ability to jack up prices just a little bit more, right? Just to pad their profits a little bit more. And so it is really that market power that is both, um, you know, at the root of the very real price increases that we're seeing in terms of input costs, but it's also that market power as well as that cover of quote unquote inflation that's giving these big companies the ability to to jack up prices on consumers because consumers don't actually know where the input costs stop and where the profit padding begins. Is it possible to determine what proportion of the price increases that consumers are facing today are a consequence of increased corporate profits? You know, that's a really tricky question. I think coming up with an exact number is is difficult just because, you know, macroeconomic modeling is difficult. But I will say that what my organization, the Groundwork Collaborative, has done is we've combed through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of earnings calls over the last three quarters or so. And essentially what we see is that these CEOs are saying the quiet part out loud, you know, over and over again. What they say is, hey, isn't this a great opportunity? We can raise our prices and no one will know because inflation is happening and and consumers are aware of that and they're, they're able to just sort of eat these price increases. And that's especially the case for um, sectors where, you know, there's an incredible uh, inelastic demand for goods, which essentially means that the demand for goods is not responsive to price increases because those goods are essential. Take something like diapers, right? So if the entire diaper market in the U.S. is essentially covered by two big companies, and if you're a parent with a kid, it doesn't matter if diapers are $20 a box or $40 a box, you're going to need to buy those diapers. And these two companies know that and they can jack up the prices as a result. And that's exactly what we're seeing. I have racked my brain for a way that the country or the world could have avoided the majority of the system. Like, so Goldie and I were arguing about this beforehand. There is simply no doubt that corporate concentration is, is a deep evil that permeates sort of Western Western capitalism that we need to defeat because it is most definitely contributing to this problem. But if there were 10 uh, shipping companies, not three, that, that they'd still be in a commanding position, wouldn't they? They would. I think also it's important to note that this particular moment in time 
it is unique, right? I mean, the yeah. underlying power that people, these companies have is not unique. And obviously it's it's been that way. This power imbalance has existed in our economy for a long time. But yeah. I think the, the fact that we are in this moment where there is a, a general rise in prices, there is inflation happening, it gives these companies cover. And I think, right. um, you know, one just to give an example, you know, we, in one of the earnings calls, we looked at Hostess, which produces um, all sorts of snack products, right? And the the CEO of the company, and in March 2022, so just a couple of weeks ago, said, quote, we're also seeing consumers experience a lot of disruptions, and it's a large range of variability as we flow throughout the year. They're losing benefits. They're moving to a normalized COVID environment. They haven't fully recognized they're absorbing pricing. And then later on in the same call, he says, pricing by definition is a change model. It's temporary. Consumers get used to it. When all prices go up, it helps. And really the point he's making there is consumers are, you know, they're really leveraging this information asymmetry. Like they're really leveraging the fact that consumers don't know how much of it is input cost rising and how much of it is profit um, profiteering. And from Q3 to Q4, we really see that sort of lock in because all these CEOs are sort of doing like a little trial balloon in Q3. They're like, maybe we'll test this out, see how it goes. And then by Q4, they're telling their investors, Yes, this is the way. Like, let, yeah. let's go for this because it's really working for us, you know. Yeah. No, I, I, I have no doubt. And having run a bajillion companies, there is nothing harder than raising prices. Mm -hmm. uh, and this dislocation is creating a, a lot of distraction, which is enabling companies to do that. And there, and there is no doubt that we have more of a corporate greed problem today than we have an underlying inflation problem today. So can we ex expand this a little more? Because the problem, Rakeen, has been more than just inflation. We've actually had shortages uh, over the past two years. We've had empty shelves. And uh, so it's not just it's not just, you know, CEOs raising prices here that we're talking about. I in your piece, you say that 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 we broke the supply chain and, and it was the result of certain policy choices. What are some of the policy choices we made over the past 50 years that led to this, uh, the fragile supply chain that we have now and the consequences that we're seeing from it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, there are a lot of big, big shifting pieces here, right? So one of them is just our permissiveness towards bigness, right? We have allowed these companies to become huge and really exert more, more power over our economy than is, than is healthy for, for a sustainable, equitable, resilient economy. We've also deregulated a lot of things, right? Not just in terms of mergers and acquisitions, but we've we've allowed working standards to come down, like really precipitated this race to the bottom. And that is a liability for a supply chain. You know, 80% of port truckers are misclassified as independent contractors. So they're not actually an employee of the port. And the upshot of that is that these these truckers, these these really essential workers who are getting goods from those ships, you know, to another point in the supply chain, aren't able to use the bathroom. They're sitting there waiting in these long lines. I mean, the the fact that these jobs are such have such rock bottom quality to them means that nobody wants them. So we have a lot of CEOs out here complaining about labor shortages, but yeah. it is actually their push to push wages down, to push quality of jobs down, that's resulted in nobody wanting those jobs in the first place, which ultimately you know, is another sort of weak point in our supply chain. And then also we've built in the system. And the reason we have such a, a brittle system is because shareholders and investors have demanded, you know, 
no, no sort of fail safe, no inventory, no real sort of wiggle room when it comes to demand, because that's the best way of making sure that your costs are kept low and your profits are kept high. So if your only incentive is to maximize short-term profits, of course, you're going to offshore to the one company that has the lowest, you know, cost for goods, or you're going to, you know, keep no sort of padding in your, in your supply chain. And so it's a lot of these decisions that have come together to create the incredibly brittle system that we have today. And that's not a pandemic problem. I think it's just being exposed by the fact that we're, we're going through this rapid shift in demand. Right, right. To be clear, we've had a, a trucker shortage for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. And no, and the one obvious solution, the, the trucking industry refused to, uh, you know, to, to embrace, which was raise wages. Yeah, pay more for truckers. Yeah. <laughs> that would, yeah, capitalism actually does offer a ready solution to this problem which is just pay people more, but it is the, not the, that, that is not music to the ears of the people running trucking businesses. So there are some parts of this problem to me that seem super clear. The egregious profiteering, it needs to be addressed and exposed. And uh, I think you guys at Groundwork are doing a fabulous job on it so that people understand that we have less of a inflation problem and more of a corporate greed problem. But I'm really wrestling with how you would build, and and the corporate concentration problem is absolutely also incredibly clear, that, that, that letting these companies get so big isn't good for anybody but a few, but a few dozen shareholders in the world, right? For everybody else, it's, it's, it's a downside. Mm-hmm. But I really struggle with how you would build a capital efficient supply chain What you would do to incentivize people to have a more robust supply chain, global global supply chain, that's a really complicated question. Do you you have thoughts on that? It is a complicated question. And there's no one-shot policy solution, right? This is a problem that took 50 years to create and may take 50 years to undo, although I think there are some real policy steps that we can take to start to address it. So first of all, to your point about investors, the largest... U.S. companies in 2021 have seen the highest levels of stock buybacks in our history at $850 billion. I mean, that's just wild. That is simply companies deciding, I'm going to pay out to my shareholders rather than investing in the productive capacity of my firm. And you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, we we see this over and over again in those earnings calls I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So Senator Whitehouse just proposed a windfall profits um, tax and, you know, really starting to tax excess profits and, and really incentivizing these firms to invest back in their business, actually invest in efficiency, actually invest in resiliency is, to me, you know, a really clear way to to start to reorient, you know, where companies, who companies are really beholden to. And, you know, that doesn't have to stop with excess profits. You can just tax corporations a little bit yeah. more. I mean, no, 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 that, for that's, sure. That's also a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one piece of it. I think there's also interventions that you can take sort of at the point of price gouging or at the point of profiteering. So I testified um, in front of the Consumer Protection Subcommittee last month about a bill that Congresswoman Strakowski has around um, price gouging and really empowering the FTC and state attorney generals to go after price gougers where they see where they see that sort of bad behavior happening. So, you know, putting these companies on notice, giving these agencies and um, offices the tools to go after bad actors, I think, is an important, um, a really important intervention. And then addressing the concentration of our economy, I think, is obviously a, a clear 
next place to go as well. I mean, you know, we have just the the majority of American goods are delivered by as few as three ocean shipping alliances, packed by four meat packers, and equipped by a single chip maker. So is it any wonder that we're seeing used car prices jump up, that we're seeing the price of beef go up by 30%, and that we're seeing bottlenecks and shortages across our supply chain? Of course not, right? Um, and so really starting to, to break apart some of these big companies and encourage a bit more competition. I mean, there, so there, there are a lot of prongs on the table, right? But I think this is a multifaceted problem that requires multifaceted solutions. Yeah. What, what about re-regulation? I mean, we used to have a regulated trucking industry. The shipping industry used to be a lot more regulated. W what would that do in terms of putting a little more resiliency back into the supply chain if that was the goal of the regulations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, trucking and rail deregulation really sort of brought down federal standards, really ensure that workers are being paid rock bottom, that these companies are, um, you know, that there was huge amounts of mergers happening too in rail and trucking. So re-regulation is a pretty key part of making sure that we make sure that the system works for everyone, right? That's the main thing. Like currently we have a system where the only stakeholder that is prioritized are shareholders. That's the only one. But really in the ecosystem we're talking about, there are shareholders and their corporate executives, but they're also consumers. They're also workers. They're also families who depend on these goods. And what we really need to do with all of these tools is to reorient our supply chains and fundamentally our economy, because supply chains are, are kind of a microcosm of our whole economy. So that it actually works for all of those stakeholders, not just the shareholders. Yeah, for sure. You know, corporate greed is best reflected in the stock buyback thing, which is just the most egregious part of our economy. For listeners who haven't done the math lately, $850 billion worth of stock buybacks is 4% of GDP. It's just, an unbelievable. it's just an astonishing amount. $850 billion per year is enough to basically fix every road, bridge, school, name your thing in America in three years or four years. I mean, it, it's just an unbelievable amount of money that is really creating no social value. You know, it's just this, just this ridiculous sort of economic merry-go-round between corporations and big holders. And the idea that this money is reinvested is just nonsense. The way to get corporations to reinvest and actually build capacity is to make stock buybacks illegal and to raise the corporate income uh, tax rate to 45 or 50%. Because in that scenario, the only way you can avoid uh, uh, high, high levels of tax is to bury the profits and more productivity in your, in your businesses and pay your workers more. It just drives me crazy. Yeah, it's a, it's a really egregious problem. And, and the thing that I worry about the most is, you know, like, as we've seen in these earnings calls, jacking up prices on consumers is a tactic that is working for executives and it's working for these shareholders, right? I mean, this, these record buybacks are going straight into shareholders' pockets. And we saw it from Q3 to Q4 and probably in the next set of earnings call data too, that the shareholders keep demanding it, right? We're seeing this sort of tactic yes. spread from one industry to another yeah. and prices are going higher and higher and higher. And a lot of economists like to talk about a wage price spiral, this idea that mm -hmm. as you know, workers demand higher wages, prices are going to have to rise and then they're going to demand higher wages. There's no evidence that that's happening whatsoever. 
what we are seeing evidence of is a profit price spiral, right? And it's it's the idea that the higher profits go, the more the investor demands are going to rise for those profits, which means that that same tactic of jacking up prices on consumers will get applied over and over and over again, all the way across the economy. And fundamentally, like I, I think this is a really interesting thing because I think it's a part of the the sort of systemic issues that we don't talk about a lot, but our whole economy has this sort of scaffolding of investors who are who are really pulling the strings, right? They're the sort of puppet masters across the entire economy. And it is corporate greed, yes, and it is it is really investor greed, shareholder greed. And until we break down Wall Street's influence in every single corner of our economy, we're only going to see this bad behavior persist. So let me ask you something, Rakeen. You, you say that you've been listening to these uh corporate uh, conference calls that they, they, you know, the quarterly conference calls. And there's all this evidence that they're focusing on raising prices. Uh, Is there any evidence that they're also investing substantially in increasing supply? That's not something I've seen. I mean, we're really focused on looking at the extractive elements of it. And those two are sort of inherently zero sum, right? If you're extracting a lot, you're probably not investing back in your business. And really over and over and over, what we see is that, you know, even companies that are getting infusions of, of money from outside of the firm. So Johnson Johnson, for example, which expects to make, I think more than $3 billion from its COVID-19 vaccine this year, which by the way, is the result of more than a billion dollars in federal funding for, for R&D for the same vaccine, you know, they're jacking up prices and they're really citing things like um, suffering and death and their optimism around the need to address that suffering as a real sort of strength of their business. Um, so, you know, we haven't seen really evidence that firms are, are investing back in their businesses. And, and frankly, that's been the case for decades, right? I mean, yeah. we've See, seen I'll, just, I'll, yeah, go ahead. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this because, you know, I've I've read the Econ 101 textbook and allegedly when demand outstrips supply, prices rise and then that incentivizes capitalists to invest in increasing supply and that will bring down the price. So you're telling me the capitalism, the markets aren't working here. Well, the markets are working in the way that these CEOs want them to work, right? Why do all the work of increasing supply and making sure your good, your company's actually delivering the good it's set up to deliver when you can just juice profits? And that's that's what we're seeing. That's the easy way out, right? It's just, you can, you can change that sticker price a little bit. And it's so easy to do when everyone is freaking out about inflation. And the reason everyone is worried about inflation is because we do have higher prices, right? We do have these higher input costs that are, the result of the same bad actors creating a system that was meant to maximize their short-term profits in the first place. So, you know, I think Econ 101 just sort of ignores completely the element of power that is just threaded Uh throughout our economy and the way that that power is used and abused and and, and used to extract from from all of us to enrich the people who, who hold that power in the first place. We always ask this uh, one question, which is the benevolent dictator question. If it was you, politics aside, what would you do, Ricky? Yeah, no, no filibuster. You, yeah. you, you, anything you want to do, you can pass. Oh gosh, that's that's a that's a <laughs> big are, question. You are queen for the day. <laughs> Man, I would love to fundamentally like all of the policies that I've named that have both gotten us into this point and and the ones that will get us out from taxing corporations, taxing excess profits, going after price gougers, um, passing the PRO Act and making sure workers have the wages and standards that they deserve. 
breaking up big companies, all of those policies, what do they boil down to? They boil down to let's make sure that the, the wealthy and powerful corporate executives and shareholders who exert too much power in our economy have less, less power, less influence. And let's make sure that, you know, the, the workers and the people who actually create our economy in the first place, make it work, make it run, make it resilient and, and successful are empowered and, and are healthy. Cause that is really when we've seen that work, right? I mean, we're in the middle of what is arguably one of the fastest recoveries, economic recoveries in American history. And that is because we we passed policies like the ARP package, which really centered people and made sure people were able to, you know, make it through a moment of crisis. They were, they didn't, they didn't, they're not going to see long-term scarring, I hope, because they had that, those checks in their pockets, because they had a child tax credit, because they had unemployment insurance that was extended for a little bit, because, you know, student loan payments were put on pause. And that's a proof point to me, right? That, you know, when you center people in our economy, that is when we actually get to a system that works for everyone. And we've tried this trickle-down thing for decades. It's clearly not working. It's how we ended up in this point in the first place. And so I think really just it's that simple. It's like, let's rebalance the power dynamics. That's what it comes down to. Fabulous. So one final question. Why do you do this work? I do this work because, you know, fundamentally, I, I care about people. Why do you care about inflation? We care about inflation because of the way it affects people. And I think they're for too long and for too many, especially those who have historically been excluded because of their, their sex or their race um, or their gender, it's it's this system is not working and and not only does that harm these you know all of us not only does that harm these individuals not only does that not allow people to live a life of dignity it fundamentally harms our entire system it holds us all back collectively when when the people who who make things run are, are not doing well and so that's why i care about it that's why i get mad about it um and i'm really glad to be in conversation with with others who feel the same well thank you so much for being with us and thank you for your work Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. That was a really super interesting conversation. And uh, I think it does underscore how complicated uh, this issue is to understand. But it is still true that in recent polling from Data for Progress, uh, now a majority of American people, including 51% of Republicans, know that corporate greed is playing an outsized role in the higher prices they're paying every day. You know, price gouging doesn't account for all the extra money folks are spending in grocery stores, but it does re represent, you know, like a pretty significant part. And here, here's a way to dimensionalize what the relationship between corporate profits and how ordinary families are doing through this process. So as Rakeen mentioned, stock buybacks are at like a ridiculous high. $850 billion per year. But to put that amount of money in perspective, if you took, there's about 140 million workers in America. If you took the bottom 100 million, which is about two thirds of folks, and divided that number of people by 850 billion in stock buybacks, it's about $6,000 a worker or $12,000 a year for a typical two-worker household. That explains why prices are higher, right? Obviously, if every household below, you know, 100, you know, in the bottom 100 million was earning 
approximately $12,000 more a year because instead of doing stock buybacks, corporations were paying their workers more fairly. None of these price increases would be impacting people in the way that they are. I want to put this in further perspective, Nick, because what we're having right now is prices are rising so that we can take $850 billion of excess profits out of the economy and pissing it away on stock buybacks to uh, mostly go into the top 0.1%. Uh, Alternatively, we could have prices rising from raising wages collectively by $850 billion and then having that increasing demand push prices up. Now, some economists might say that's a wash, but if I was one of those 140 million American workers, oh wait, I am, I'd say I'd rather have the money uh, than you, Nick. Yeah, correct. hundred <laughs> percent. I'd rather it go 100%. to me than go to you. Yeah. And and the other hundred, me and the other hundred and forty million uh workers in America. And uh, oh yeah, by the way, you know, prices aren't gonna rise so much that it's gonna eat up uh all of uh, uh my income. That's right. But the you know, I think that it's fair to say that the pandemic has exposed a ton of weaknesses in the neoliberal economy, low wages, delicate supply chains, egregious profit taking, increasing inequality, all this stuff. But the problems are not really different than the problems we've been talking about for a long time pre pandemic. You know, corporate concentration is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is in many ways affecting the capacity for the economy to respond to this massive dislocation. I think Rakeen uh, focused in on it when she started talking about power. Uh, and we've talked about this a lot uh, on the podcast, how important power is and how much economists ignore it. Uh, this imbalance of power in the American economy that has been building over the past 50 years. It's not just income inequality, it's power inequality and the two right. go together. And you see it again and again, the things that are at play here, the rise in consolidation, the monopolization and uh, consolidation within industry after industry that gives uh, these companies the power to raise prices uh, simply because there, there, there isn't enough competition yeah. to force them to keep the prices down, the power that allows them to keep wages low, uh, the power that allows them to offshore jobs to save a couple bucks an hour on labor, right. um, the power that allows them to uh, buy enough political influence to keep their taxes low so that they're not, they're not paying uh, to reinvest in uh, public goods and public services, uh, the power that allows corporations to lobby to keep their regulations down. You know, we grew up in a very different economy, and uh, we're both old enough to remember the, the inflation of the 1970s, which supposedly is what we should be afraid of. My big takeaway from this conversation, Nick, is that this is not your grandfather's inflation. No. This has nothing to do with what we experienced in the 1970s, which was that, that stagflation that undermined confidence in uh, the old Keynesian consensus, uh, where we had high unemployment and high inflation at the same time. We don't have that right now. 
We have low unemployment. That's right. And we, I think what, what's happening right now is effectively the confluence of two things. A once in a hundred year dislocation, which would right. have created higher prices and good, good shortages under the best of circumstances, right? Even if every single thing in policy you and I wanted had happened, we would still have some challenges. But that dislocation has been irredeemably you know, magnified by the neoliberal uh, construct that we live with today and the price gouging that is enabled by that. We could have had a more resilient supply chain because we could have made the decision yeah. to have a more resilient supply chain. Yes. And uh, we have sacrificed resiliency throughout our economy. We have made uh, the supply chain less re resilient. We have made corporate America less resilient. We have made workers and families yeah. less resilient. All we of have it is true. All for the sake of low prices. And, and high uh, profits. And high profits. And we have <laughs> deregulated yeah. across the board to do that. And I think we've gone too far and we could make the decision to re-regulate with the goal of having a more resilient economy, uh, making Americans less precarious. And that would be more expensive and things might cost a little more, but we wouldn't be subject to such severe and prolonged shocks as we are now. And we could construct an economy in which these, uh, the, the pains of these shocks would be more broadly shared. From your lips to God's ears, Goldie. <laughs>